Welcome to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. This is a podcast where we explore how the best B2B sales leaders make the complex simple, drive relationships and revenue, and generally elevate the sales profession. In this podcast, we're bringing together sales experts, thought leaders, top account executives, buyers, industry insiders, all to share their experiences and best practices for navigating the complex sales cycle. So whether you're a seasoned sales professional, a sales leader, or just starting out, you're going to find practical insights and actionable advice that you can apply to your own sales journey. Plus, we have a bit of fun. Today on the Art and Science of Complex Sales, we welcome Jocko Vanderkoy. Jocko is the founder of Winning by Design. He's author of Blueprints of a Sales SaaS Organization and seven other books. He's a sales mentor across multiple VC firms and is a foremost expert in the SaaS sales space. He loves to move forward and grow in the world of sales. A former world championship level triathlete for the Netherlands, his insight have been featured in Harvard Business Review, and he's a frequent keynote speaker at sales and sales tech conferences around the world. The youngest of eight, raised in a small farming village in the Netherlands, Jaco has a passion for helping us move forward. Get ready to learn a lesson from one of the masters. Well, welcome, Jaco. Welcome so much to the show. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure and it's a treat. Well, so we have to start with the first question to set the baseline for everybody in this is, Jocko, from your perspective, you've been in sales a long time and focused on SaaS, but can you help me help me define sales for the audience? Sales is helping a customer to buy. This is in stark contrast of us thinking, you know, we are here to help the company to sell. Company to sell you know, products and services and getting revenue out of that, that's an outcome of us helping our customers to buy. So Jocko, you're best known really in the SaaS arena. Is, is there a spe- specific definition relative to SaaS that you leverage for sales or, or is it simply helping them on the, buy, the buyer journey? I think what, what differs in SaaS, Paul, is that SaaS is very dependent on recurring revenue. The, the whole nature when we look at SaaS, we often think it's a cloud-based operation and it's applications that sit in the cloud that can be accessed from anywhere in the world. Where if you look underneath, you actually see that SaaS is a lot more than that. Uh, SaaS is a recurring revenue stream. If you think about what, what was said early 2012, uh, that software is eating the world uh, uh, by Mark Andreessen, that certainly is the case. But imagine if software was still costing what it would cost then, a million dollars up front, or at least half a million dollars up front. There would not be thousands and thousands of software companies selling product. What made that possible is recurring revenue. The monthly subscription fee made it possible. And so what you'll see today is that, you know, like successful SaaS companies are companies that have a successful recurring revenue stream. What are the features that you find within a really good SaaS sales team? Like what are some of the elements of a really good SaaS sales team? Process driven is the number one issue. What you'll see is that when you think of this, this is spun off. SaaS is spun off out of perpetual software sales. And the word perpetual software sales comes from the license that you had a a license that you could use in perpetuity. If you go all the way back, software was sold as a tack-on to hardware, right? And hardware was really what it was all about, and then you needed some software. So over time, that software started to cause issues. Uh, Why? Because software needed constant updates because it had bug fixes. These bug fixes 
and you know, like I have to take even one step further back, these software programs were often custom created per processor, per hardware device. So you had, for example, in, in the old days, you had software for the 386 pro, uh, processor and the 286 and the Intel processor and this and that. And that meant that we had that software companies had a huge amount of permutations of software, each for a different hardware environment, each with their own bug fixes. That caused that a lot of companies had to deal with this enormous amount of testing and that meant that most of the quality of engineers were all assigned to QA. If you look at late 90s, early 2000s, the primary quality resources were all in the QA department. The moment in time that we created that single you know, instant, that single branch that we all ran off, aka SaaS, and we ran it in the cloud, which allowed that, it suddenly became you know, a whole new ball of, of, ball of wax for, for our users, right? And that gave us the opportunity to start thinking about it as in a recurring revenue stream. No longer was it needed to fund all these engineers that were each running on a different product. That is what the fundamentals of where SaaS came from. That means, that's a very long story, but that means is that the origins come from enterprise-grade software sales. And so what we see today is the nature of how we sell is still in that along those lines. Now, when I'm selling $10 million software packages, right? In those days, if you think SAP and even uh, other software programs, the IBM programs, they all were a million dollar plus in, in, in packages for a company. If you think of it that way, then you're, you're selling as a salesperson, maybe one or two software packages a year. And if it's a $10 million package, it is not unknown in those days for you to work two to three years on that sale. That makes it an artistic sale. What we see with recurring revenue is that if you think about these packages, and you know, there's a there's a bell curve of these software packages and applications being sold as a platform around twenty thousand to fifty thousand dollars. That means you no longer need to sell one or two packages. You need to sell five, ten, twenty, and sometimes a hundred packages a year with a win rate of one in three to one in five. That means that your mindset has, has, needs to shift to a volume base, to a factory. When you start thinking about software sales as a factory, you quickly come to the conclusion that you need to run it as a process. And what we see today, Paul, is that most organizations still think of SaaS software sales as an artistic sales and are not embracing process. Not at all. They are actually adverse of process. You will literally see sales organizations Deal with that as it relates to today's CRM, skills training, use of playbook, and so on and so forth. Long-winded so me, answer, but a very detailed answer. No, it's a great, it's a great answer, and it explains a lot. I, I think so. Let's bring it back to your initial definition of sales, right? Which is to help essentially to help the buying process. Take me through that. How do you connect? How do you work with sales teams and SaaS teams to connect that process-based, which is a factory, the factory-based? the science of selling to the art, which is how do I connect? How does a salesperson connect to the buying process? Well, one of the key things down here often comes down to lead development. In a factory-driven process, you need stuff flowing in, then you need to process that so stuff can go out. So it always almost comes down to, to, to lead generation. Mm -hmm. Historically, when we look at lead generation, you know, over the past years, the past decade, since 2012, really, we've been in a golden age of SaaS sales. What do I mean with that? 
What I mean is that when I historically was selling multi-million dollar software packages and I now offer that, you know, think about early 2010, and I offer that for a fraction of the cost, I'm in a green field of opportunity. Going to anyone that buys an SAP package, CRM package, spends $10 million a year and say, I'm going to sell it to you for $5,000 a month. Of course, that's going to work well. Maybe not in enterprise right away, but for sure in VSB and SMB right away. And so we saw over the past 10 years that an enormous green field of opportunity existed. Think of it as you're throwing around seeds in a fertile ground where rain is naturally coming every couple of days, right? You have to do literally nothing and this thing will grow, right? Yeah. And that is what we have seen. And as a result, we see that for most sales professionals in the SaaS world, it's not as simple as, hey, I'm picking up, you know, like just orders, you know, like left and right. But it's definitely not as complicated as deep enterprise sales as what we know as multi-tiered, you know, multi-stage selling from the past. It is trending. It's way more trending towards the simplicity of picking up an order of, of facts, right? So, like, we're talking about 10, maybe 12 meetings over a period of 6 to 12 months to close a $20,000 to $50,000 deal. That means that with those fewer steps and stages at a higher rate, that means that different things are becoming important. Things such as, can I trust you in a matter of six months without flying to you and spending a steak dinner with you or a golf game or you know, any other form of in-person communication? Can I do this remote? And, and, and because I, I got more deals to close. I have no time to fly to every customer, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I meet you once a year at a major conference like Dreamforce or something like that. But uh, it, it changes the behavior of the sales professional What we have seen today is that the deep sales expertise has isolated themselves on the high end and really has created the moat between themselves and the new generation of sales. We are currently in their, let's say, mid-30s and who are more technology-driven, technology-savvy in most cases, but have a a very different approach to sales that is uh, less, you know, I have to say less skill level and more volume-based approach, which is only the result of you know, like what we've seen over the past decade is an enormous greenfield of opportunity. And I see. So I think that in the greenfield, if I if I catch this right, I think the greenfield that you're talking about that exists right now. I, I mean, we got to dive into where you see this going, but there seems to be a huge. We talk about a greenfield is that the ability to take that process but put more skilled people lower down the deal size. Right, so just so they can increase their skill level, we need to focus on increasing the skill level of all reps, and that is seems to me right where we are in market. Am I am I hitting that or am I off? Uh your yeah, the, the observation is correct. Yeah, I think that w- what we've seen is, and I want to I want to take you th- to, to this, right? Okay, so two thousand nine. I want to for the for your listeners, but I'm, here's yeah, what I'm yeah. going to do. I'm going to describe the problem that we really are having, right? And and so we really understand what the problem is. Then I'm gonna dissect it into the key pieces of what that problem is so that we can properly solve it. Otherwise, this is all just opinion-based, you know, like, and so I've written much of this in in a paper called um, uh, In the Eye of the Storm, The Sweet Spot in the Eye of the Storm. Okay, so I wanna take you to 2019. Imagine in 2019 or, or, you know, like in 2019, let's establish first, you know, SaaS software is is pretty is well known. It's commonly used. Mm-hmm. 
but it is not used in super critical functions. It is primarily used, let's say, as a docu-sign and stuff like that, right? I mean, it's critical, but it's not the fundamental backbone of the company yet, right? And not considered, right? And so we still see the separation by a CTO or a CISO that says like, okay, my enterprise-grade software is still Microsoft and, you know, like they still look for, for things like this. Okay, in 2019, if I would have told the world that within a year, the entire world would depend on SaaS, people would have said, it won't work. It will collapse. Yet, as in 2020, as it occurred, in a matter of days, maybe weeks at most, the entire world became dependent on SaaS solutions. And I vividly remember for the first time when I watched like, you know, like some news reporting on TV, and I saw that the newscaster, the news, the journalist was coming in from their home on a Zoom license. And I go like, look, that's the tool stack I'm using at home. Like, this is my world. It's suddenly becoming now on national TV, right? Why are they using a Zoom license, right? It became a big moment. Mm -hmm. If in short, we noticed that everybody was using it. And I'm taking, talking people who went to church, students, teachers, Everyone, governments, news agencies, media companies, everybody was using cloud services. Everyone. Now, let's assume in order to make this happen, did the internet as a whole fail anywhere along the line? No, the internet didn't. I mean, it had a glitch occasionally, right? But it, it didn't fail. Did the server, did the AWS data centers or the Azure data centers or the IBM cloud data centers or the, or the Google cloud data centers, did any of those, those data centers collapse overnight under the pressure and say, like, I'm give up? None of that, right? Okay. Did the applications on top of that started to fail miserably? Did, did Zoom fail miserably? Did DocuSign fail miserably? No, it didn't. They all worked as advertised. The entire thing scaled as advertised. It worked incredibly well. If you think about it, it was a feature that should be recognized for what it was. A moment of brilliance for the SaaS industry. So. That's amazing. Yep. Right? That's great. So, no, that is great perspective. Absolutely great perspective. Okay. So why in the heck? If all these products and services, this entire ecosystem worked so well, why did the SaaS market crash in 2020? It didn't crash because the internet failed, the cloud failed, the applications didn't work, none of that, right? And mm -hmm. oh, by the way, during this cloud fantastic operation, every human being on earth for a reasonable dollar figure could access that service, right? Students could get it for free, teachers had to pay $8 a month for Zoom and so on and so forth. This incredible industrial grade software was available to every slice of the population, every slice of it. And you could probably even get it for free and then you had to watch it with some ads, right? Something like that, right? And so in 2022, what failed? The cloud, the internet didn't fail, the cloud didn't fail, the application didn't fail and the recurring revenue model didn't fail. None of that failed, it, it had worked phenomenally. So what did? Why did? Why did suddenly, under the pressure of the economic markets, right, with less funding available, why did we suddenly turn to SaaS and say, like, oh my gosh, they're overvalued? What made us do that? That is because the cost, the cost was so high. 
Now, where does this cost come from? If you look at the cost and, you know, you look at what on average, you know, like if you take companies, you'll see some companies at 50 to $100 million in revenue still spending 60%, as much as 60% of the annual revenue per year on what? On marketing and sales. And that mm -hmm. is the problem. If you look at that, that is referred to as the go-to market function. And it is in this go-to market function that the entire market failed. It is the cost of the go-to market function. Now, when you double click and say like, well, where did this go into the go-to market function? And as I described in uh, this paper called um, in the sweet, spot, uh, the sweet Spot in the Eye of the Storm, it comes due to like a few things. Number one, we are relatively in this market dependent on unskilled labor. It doesn't matter what people say that I can't call them unskilled labor. Look, we're dealing in generally in order to lower the cost of acquisition, we can't afford half a million dollar enterprise reps to sell a $20,000 package a year. I get that. And so we had to step down to first jobber, first jobber, second jobbers, people in the late 20s, early 30s. And those people are compensated less, but they have a significant, they do not have the enterprise grade skill level, which in a green fuel market was not a problem. Pick up the phone, call somebody up, set up a discovery call, process the deal, right? Yep. In a more challenging market, what? Everything is SaaS, where we have 35,000 SaaS services. And in some categories like marketing and sales tech, we have 6,000, 7,000 companies competing, not all doing the same, but they're all competing for the same dollars. So when you have this amount of money, you need different sales skills. And therefore, I call this unskilled labor with no finger pointing to those performing it. None at all. It is none of their problem. It is a shame that the companies put them into place, never gave them the proper skill training, simply abused them and said like, either you hit target or you're out of here, right? And consumed these people at a rapid motion. That is the problem. That's what I mean of unskilled labor. No finger pointing to the laborer themselves, but rather to those companies who didn't own up on their responsibilities to provide that skill training. Well, I, I see this point, too. I see that. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but I see... We see that too, right? As a revolving door of salespeople, we should. There's a 35 to 45 percent revolving door of salespeople on an ongoing basis. Exactly that, because they're uns. I, I, I like that term because it's absolute. It's not the salesperson's fault, but it's the company that has just thrown them in. Said, "Here's here's your prospecting list. Here's the, how you go." And uh, it's it's like a factory with unskilled workers, right? Absolutely like, right. A factory of unskilled workers and, and executing a process that has, is either a, is unproven, most mm -hmm. cases is not present, and, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so, so hold that thought, right? The second thing that we did, and I'll give you a practical example, by the way. This is very common for me. Like and every now and then, you know, every once a quarter, maybe once every two quarters, I still perform a training to keep, you know, to keep the axe sharp, so to speak, right? To make sure mm -hmm. that I keep my trades sharp. The other day, I'm training a company and I have to fly to, for this company to Europe. And we are training uh, for this. And the company, our training requires that they print a playbook. And this particular book that we had in mind, and in this case, we we're training on uh, my beloved uh, uh, friends, the Jolt Effect. And we train on behalf of the Jolt Effect. Jolt Effect outsources their training to us, so okay. in, in their in-person training to us. And so we, we, had done that. we are doing this, for which they need the book, the Jolt Effect. I mean, like, this is like... So we asked this company to send the book. A lot of humming and awing, 
lot of humming and arm because the book costs money, but you get like, you get particular discounted copies in this volume, right? But the shipping of books, shipping of paper is extremely expensive, right? Shipping of paper is, must be like one of the most expensive things on earth. And so they, they balked at the shipping cost. And so we get a absolute no-no on the printing of the book. And so at the last moment, we go like, what the heck? How do we train this? And so we decided, we created a few printouts and we decided to print locally so we could at least get all this done in time. A lot of haggling. This took place over six weeks, right? This is not something, but the enablement team didn't want print books. Why? Because the total cost of the books and the shipping was $5,000. And they had no more budget for that, so to speak. I show up on site. And the first thing as I pick up my badge for this particular, and it's a customer dedicated conference, right? For all their own people. Is I see that during check-in, everybody gets a goodie bag. And what do they get? An $8 branded you know, like uh, Arcteryx expensive <laughs> shirt, right? Jacket. Look, if we treat skill training less important than the way you look and feel, that's what you get. You can't blame the people. You give them the jersey with the logo on it, but you're unwilling to give them the book that contains the skills for them to do their job because the $5,000 is expensive. And let me tell you, that Arcteryx thing, that's going to cost you about $80 in the volume that they had customized with logo and anything. And times 300, that's if I calculate that quick enough, that's $24,000 that you just spent on shirts or something like that, right? So don't come talk to me that the $5,000 for the book skill is too expensive. This is where management goes wrong. They deem the value of a logo shirt to be part of the team more important than the skill training that is required for people to do their job. That's number one I'm gonna, problem. I'm gonna get on I'm gonna get on the bandwagon here and just let you know that one of the things that I, I found so important, like if I, I had a friend the other day, he looked at me and we were in, he said, look around you. Everything here has been sold. Right? Everything here has been bought and sold. And and I think sales is like one of the most personally, I think sales is is one of the best professions in the world. I think it's also one that gets the least training. When you start to really look at it, because sales, I have this philosophy, sales is leadership, right? Sales is a leadership competency in my mind. And you have the opportunity as companies have the opportunity if with a, a little bit more investment, and it's not a, a lot more, but with a little bit more investment to build leaders that will go out to the market and absolutely explode your growth rather than building people that can operate one part of an assembly line. And you give five ways and common actions to help people kind of navigate this eye of the storm and to to increase their, you know, increase their investment in their their teams and make them better. Do you mind walking through those with us? No, because I, but I haven't finished the previous point. Right? Okay. I to, no, keep going. Know, like, yeah. Like the first point was unskilled labor. The second point is the overuse of tools. Okay. And I think that what we see, you know, like what companies spend a lot of money on is they spend a lot, a lot of money on tools, thinking that the stu- the tool will overcome the lack of skills. And that a tool itself. And where do we find ourselves? You know, 10 years after we've been told all these tools can increase the level of productivity, we still see the same, relatively the same level of, 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 of productivity um, uh, taking place. So tools, I, now don't get me wrong. I think there's a series of tools that can help tremendously. But I think that if we consolidate the entire tool stack to about like two thirds, maybe 50% of it, that we will save a lot of money that we can spend instead on skill training of people, right? And, and again, 
Tools are essential, are needed. I love me to use some good tools. There's a number of tools that I'm highly in favor of, right? And uh, but what we what we need is we have overspent, we have over-indexed significantly on tools and under-indexed significantly on skill. And that needs to, this is the time to correct itself. The third part that uh, that has caused this is that this occurred at rapid growth companies where virtually an unlimited amount of funding was given under the terms grow at any and all cost. And so here we are using these people, here we are using these with being unskilled labor, and here we're using overuse of these tools to grow literally at any and all cost. And that decade of the goal, what I call the golden age of SaaS has ended in 2022, that, that golden age of SaaS that was dependent on the any grow at any and all cost, which started off with Mark Andreessen's article late 2011, I think it was in August 2011 or something like that, software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. If you understand, truly, it is not software that was making the world, that was eating the world, it was the recurring revenue that was doing that. If you look at recurring revenue that grew the companies very fast, that gave us the idea that we could grow at any and all cost. In 2020, when the market was, a, was set for a correction, late 2019, we were growing towards a more sustainable approach. But the pandemic stepped in and said, like, no, 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 no. We want some more of that grow at any and all cost. And so we did. We threw more oil on the fire. We used more unskilled labor. We used more tools to grow faster and faster. That all came at an increasing cost, and that collapsed you know, like late 2021, early 2022. And, you know, ever since we were dealing with the remnants of it, and we are here today in start of Q2 of 2023 experiencing this. We'll probably go through this for another good six months before, you know, we, I do think we have bottomed, bottomed out a little bit. But what is coming next is the churn, and that will be the last one. So we'll see a little bit of churn increase over the next three months. That churn increase will, will cause more issues. And then over summer, as in the, the uh, West uh, Northern Hemisphere summer, we will see that this, this market uh, stabilizes in Q4 of this year, 2023, things will start to come back up. All right. We're cutting the first half of the podcast here at this point. The conversation with Jocko was fantastic and continues and we'll keep on going in the next episode where Jocko will get into critical information on where SaaS and SaaS sales are going. This includes his discussion of the eras of scalability, sustainability, and durability. Talk with you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the art and science of complex sales. This podcast is sponsored by Membrane and our partners from around the globe. Here at Membrane, we believe that B2B sales is at a crossroads. Due to decades of quantity-based prospecting, information overload, and really a shift towards efficiency over service and pitching over leadership in sales, customers are saying enough is enough. They're tuning out average performers and choosing to take most of the buying journey on their own. This results in up and down sales results, forecasts that are all over the place, and salespeople that are half committed due to the fact that they're having poor results and they have an inability to truly connect with customers. We believe the road successful companies are taking to combat this is threefold. Number one, training to create leaders and executives across all areas of the team with strong habits and sales methodologies that bring value. Number two, technology. Technology that focuses and helps a salesperson succeed and reinforces great habits rather than wasting their time on filling out fields for reporting or wasting their time on spamming customers that have no interest in ever buying. Third, talent. 
And I'm talking about talent that's empowered and emboldened to make a difference for their customers and their companies. So where are you on that journey? Membrane and our network of partners across the globe are here to help and to elevate the sales profession. We streamline critical technology by combining CRM, training and enablement, and more into one seamless platform. We drive best-in-class methodologies through our partners. They provide the top thought leadership methodologies and resources from across the globe. And our collective efforts are dedicated to recruiting, training, coaching, and empowering, and measuring the habits of the top teams in the world to ensure success. Join us at Membrane.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening.